The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Palmitier. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and the founder and owner of the Southern Palm Psychology and Wellness, a psychology and wellness practice that provides therapy services to children, adolescents and adults. Dr. Palmitier specializes in anxiety and mood disorders, parenting and pediatric psychology, trauma-related disorders, relational stress and obsessive-compulsive disorder. In today's episode, we will explore various ways survivors of narcissistic abuse can build and maintain healthier relationships, focusing on trust, communication, shared interests and emotional respect. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Taylor Palmitier. It's so nice to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. And I'm excited to um, talk about uh, these topics that we have today with you because we have many important questions. And since we have so many, I want to get started right away with our first one, which is as a survivor of narcissistic abuse, how can I honor commitments in my relationships and build trust with others? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think I'm going to start with a brain-based approach to this question, just because it lays the foundation for trust and how the brain processes trust in a sense of safety in our bodies. Okay. So a lot of people who have been through narcissistic abuse develop PTSD symptoms, whether or not they have the full-blown PTSD diagnosis, a lot of what they experience is very similar to those symptoms. So those include hypervigilance, depression, major anxiety, avoidance, feeling really tense, poor sleep, poor appetite, poor self-esteem, among many others. So when we talk about PTSD, PTSD is a disorder of the nervous system. It's the body's reaction to danger. And many people have heard of fight or flight, and that's exactly what's going on when we're dealing with PTSD. Okay, so it's the brain's way of saying that a very dangerous thing has happened, which is the abuse. And I'm going to do everything possible to prevent that from happening again. It doesn't care if you have to stay in a cave for the rest of your life. What matters is that you're going to avoid future abuse. Okay, so when we talk about this brain approach, we want to talk about what the brain does. So the brain is constantly scanning our bodies, it's scanning relationships, it's scanning the environment for signs of safety and signs of danger. So someone who's experienced narcissistic abuse, the danger cues are very high where the safety cues are very low. So if we're constantly processing danger cues, we're going to be on guard all the time. And when we're on guard, we cannot develop a sense of trust in a relationship or follow through with our commitments because we're fearful. Okay. I could talk about this all day. I love the brain body connection and how trauma abuse relate to the brain, but I'm going to give you kind of a sped up version of this and give you to how to, how to address that. Yeah. Yeah. Before you go into that, can you just quickly kind of explain why, um, so is it just like because because you have been in an abusive relationship, you mm-hmm. had in order to survive, you your nervous system and body in general and brain had to become very good at uh, seeing those signs of danger, so that it could you know a little bit anticipate better and prepare for whatever situation. So mm-hmm. then after you have you are out of the relationship, that still is like that's still on and activated, that you are still very good at seeing the danger signs. And then you said that you are, that we don't, someone who has experienced abuse and may have PTSD or PTSD symptoms, that they are less able to see those safe signs, right? So is it just because the danger signs are so activated compared to the safe signs, or do we actually lose our ability somehow to see those safe signs like when we think about our brain or is it just what what is it question i think there's both mechanisms happening so when we go through trauma 
the, the body automatically learns that we're in danger. So it heightens that fight or flight response. So it doesn't care about sense of safety. It matters. The danger is what matters. Oh. So we're hyper aware and attuned to the danger. And then because everything was so dangerous, the safety cues are not as relevant. Does that make sense? So I think also we're not as attuned to the safety cues. Mm. Not okay. as important, but also our ability to see them is diminished too, like you said. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So like we often, I feel like we are often like, oh, our bodies are and brains are so like smart and everything. But yeah. in this case, it seems like, well, if we could see those safety signs, we could be able to kind of balance our worldview and thinking yeah. and, you know, calm ourselves down. But in this case, our body is not that smart right away. Like we have to train right. it first again exactly. to yeah. properly, you know, see those safety signs more and give them more of a relevance and not always mm -hmm. downplay them. Definitely. And there are a couple different ways to do that. So we would first look at something called bottom up processing. And that's just a fancy word for body work. So okay. we want to work with the body to increase the body's sense of safety. Okay, so what we would do is meditation, we would do some breathing exercises, maybe progressive muscle relaxation. This works with the very primitive parts of the brain that send cues to the body, its body sensations, and it's our emotional center. So if we work with that, the body can learn to look at the safety, safety cues, because it feels safer in the environment. And then the next part of that would be that top-down processing. So top-down processing is what I think you were referring to as being psychologically aware of the safety cues and making them more apparent in our life. That's where we would rely on that cortex, the thinking part of our brain that's more evolved. And when we use that part, we would be able to challenge the thoughts that promote more danger. Um, I would say more danger thought processes. Mm, okay. And so now it sounds like that you really need both both of those uh, those in order to make this whole thing work. And can you kind of talk about what if someone is only engaging in one of those? And does the order matter? And how do you, like, do you first have to do a lot of bottom up stuff? Mm -hmm. Or is it, do you first have to go top bottom and, you know, the connection between these two approaches? And yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend starting with the bottom up. And that's my opinion. But I think working with the body first creates that sense of safety, even when the brain is not ready to go there yet. Okay. So if we work on the bottom up, we calm the body, which ultimately calms the mind as well. Okay. So if we're creating that sense of safety in the body, we're more likely to see cues of safety if the body is calm because we're looking at the sympathetic nervous system. So if we have PTSD or we're in a state of hypervigilance, the sympathetic nervous system is activated and using the breath work, using the body work allows us to shift into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calm, relaxed state. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. And you said that, yeah, your personal preference is bottom up. Mm -hmm. like a bottom top approach uh, mm -hmm. but isn't it just i'm just trying to think what if someone tries to do it the other way around it seems a little bit like there might be some like challenges in that can you talk about those if you, something comes to your mind or just you know why do you prefer the bottom yes, i think it's it's really important because if we don't do the body work first we don't have as much access to the cortex which is the thinking part because when we're in fight or flight, the brain and the body say, yeah, we don't need that thinking part. It's not as relevant. We need to just survive. So if we jump right into the thinking while the body is still activated, we're not going to get very far because we're just going to have that heightened body sense. Mm. Okay? So if we do the body work, we calm the body, we gain access to the cortex of the brain. So we can start to think more about the anxious thoughts, the mistrusting thoughts that are coming up. And we can actually challenge that and do some cognitive processing. Mm, so it sounds like that focusing first on the body, we increase our cognitive capacity. Like, like, exactly. yeah, like exactly. there's more room for everything. We have more like 
how do you call how should one call it more just mental resources yeah yeah, yeah. thank you yeah sure. okay yeah makes makes a lot of sense and so this when we do this does this then naturally you know when we think about building trust with others in mm -hmm. relationships and not just you know romantic relationship but oh, like all types of relationships and once you do this kind of that you first focus obviously on yourself the bottom mm -hmm. top approach and then top bottom uh, and it, no before before i go that did you explain already like what are because you said the bottom top uh and how to calm your like body is like deep breathing meditation stuff mm -hmm. like that what is then the thinking is it that you just reframe your thoughts or when when someone has already done the body work what yeah. is the other what what is there you know the great top. question yeah so that would involve a series of things and everybody can i mean every therapist if you're working with the therapist might approach it differently this is what we would call cognitive processing or even that cognitive behavioral therapy where we start to log our automatic thoughts we pick apart what thoughts are causing those dangerous situations or the interpretation of the dangerous situations so um, let's say an example um, i'm asked to go to dinner with a friend and i've made a commitment to go to that dinner and before the dinner i start to have these anxious mistrusting thoughts of this person is going to use me <clears throat> or this person doesn't like me. Those would be the anxious mistrusting thoughts that we would work on. So the response then to those thoughts would be avoidance. I'm not going to follow through with that commitment. I'm going to avoid. But we would look at the thoughts. We would look at are they actually valid or is this a product of the abuse that I've been through before? Is this my brain telling me how to stay safe? when it's actually not being my friend in that situation. And I always say our brain is not our friend because our brain just wants us to survive and avoid abuse. It doesn't care how we get there. So it's up to us to think about what the brain is giving us. So if the brain is a computer, it's going to give us output based on past experiences. And it's saying, avoid, avoid, avoid. This is dangerous. They might use you. They might not like you. So it's our job to think about what that computer is telling us. Mm, okay yeah and that was a great practical example so let's say uh, i'm gonna use that so someone mm -hmm. is yeah they had agreed to meet with a friend or with someone else and there is a com like that that's the commitment and then those thoughts come like you know you become very anxious you think that they're going to use you or that they don't like you um is it in that situation do you first have to you know do some deep breathing if you feel that you are very anxious and then once you have a little bit calmed down like you can feel inside you that okay my emotional state is not anymore that heightened it's you know maybe you know a little bit less now then you do the i don't know journaling where you kind of or or some some other way you engage in this cognitive processing and think really like are these thoughts based on actual truth or quote-unquote truth like what is happening here or mm -hmm. are they coming from the past or how would you advise in using that exact uh, example situation yeah so first we'd have to recognize that we're in a heightened emotional state we'd have to recognize that the body doesn't feel good and that trauma response is activated and the best way to do that is you're, you're feeling anxious you notice you want to avoid and your body probably feels really stressed out it could be the racing heart. It could be a stomach ache. It might start to feel dizzy, whatever those body warning signs are. And then we would definitely, like you said, take those deep breaths, maybe do a meditation, whatever works for you to calm your body. And then we would jump into the exercises. And something that is helpful, I think, for, for people who've been in relationships where maybe their reality has been challenged for so long and they have difficulty trusting themselves is to create a list of safety features. So this could be safety and environment. What are the cues that I'm actually safe? What about with another person? How do I know this person's safe? And write down a list. So when we are in that heightened space, we can refer back to it if we can't access that brain, that cortex of the brain. Mm. Okay. And that can shift us back into a more calm state and allow us to go into the 
top-down process where we can analyze our thoughts. Mm, yeah, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And so now it sounds like that, you know, since if these you know situations keep happening, for example, where you would get anxious all the time uh, whenever you make a commitment and uh, then you end up canceling. That if you do are if you then are able to kind of really listen to your body and calm yourself down and let's say at some point analyze your thoughts and then you're like okay i'm good to go like i'm not gonna cancel that well then naturally there is less cancellation so there is more kind of also trust because of course if you keep canceling you know people mm -hmm. are going to, it's not kind of good for the relationship in a way of course people probably can understand if they really are good friends of yours that okay they are yeah. being very anxious but uh so is this the kind of science behind it that once you uh follow kind of your advice that leads almost like naturally building trust uh with others mm -hmm. yes definitely because the more we do this the more we we trust ourselves and we follow through with the commitments we rewrite that trauma story which helps the brain learn that we're actually safe so we're getting our bodies out of fight or flight because the brain is learning that we can do this, we're safe. And the more we do that, the more feedback we get from the environment and from other people that this is safe. And like you mentioned, other people are going to then see us as reliable and trustworthy because we're not backing out of our commitments. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, then uh, what do you think what are some effective strategies for setting clear expectations, following through on promises made, and communicating effectively when circumstances change or obstacles arise? Okay. Well, first, I think someone who's experienced an abusive relationship, particularly narcissistic abuse, may need to work on that self-trust first before we can learn to identify our own emotions and what those expectations are and communicate it. So I would say that step one is getting in touch with what you actually feel, what your expectations are for that person. And then we can jump into the, the steps to take to communicate that. So once someone is feeling confident in that and they've identified how they feel, which I would say you can journal, you can work with a therapist, you can just sit down and write a list, get in touch with how you feel. Meditation is a great way to do that too. But after that, then I, I recommend assertiveness training because there's so much available. You don't actually have to go to a formal training. You can research this online, you can read a book, and it's a pretty straightforward process when we engage in that assertiveness training. And assertiveness involves, well, first of all, the healthiest form of communication that we can use. And it involves boundary settings or boundary setting, I statement, self-awareness of our own emotions, and then trust in ourselves to notice those emotions and respond to them in a calm way and respond to the emotions of others in a calm way. So I can break those down a little bit more too, but do you have any questions first before I do uh, that? Yeah, well... One question that came, I don't know if you're going to address this, but you said that you can, everybody can pretty easily kind of research this on their mm -hmm. own. But see, there are so many resources out there and not everything yeah. is as good as others. So do you have, for example, your favorite book about this assertiveness topic or, you know, some yeah. other resource in mind? Sure. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I can definitely provide you with some. Yeah, today please. Today and, and you can have it available yeah yeah i can add it to the notes later so okay. that would be helpful okay sure definitely all right so with assertiveness if we start with that boundary setting this involves setting clear expectations about what you will and will not tolerate and i think that part is really important of what are you willing to tolerate because everybody has different levels of tolerance in a relationship and we're all entitled to having our own levels of of tolerance and if we just got out of an abusive relationship, maybe we need to create even a greater sense of safety for ourselves and more boundaries for ourselves until we can learn to work through that. And that's mm -hmm. okay. 
So we would want to set those boundaries because that fight or flight system is activated in communications or when we are trying to set boundaries and communicate effectively following an abusive relationship, we may want to prepare ahead for that. So again, we would want to take time to think about what our expectations are, what those boundaries are for ourselves and write them down. Most important part is having them on a piece of paper that you can physically bring with you to a conversation if there is something that you really want to communicate. Because if you're activated, that nervous system response is activated in the conversation, we want to make sure that we, we can still communicate effectively. Okay, and the more we do this, the easier it will be and that fight or flight response will be lowered. Mm. So the next part of that would be I statements. And I statements, in my opinion, are the best thing in the world. It's the healthiest tool you can use in a relationship because it's so easy to implement. It has a formula and partners can actually have that formula in front of them. And when I'm working with couples in therapy, I actually have them hold this formula in their hands and they have to follow it. And an example of this would be, I feel, let me get my example out here so I don't botch that. Yeah. Okay. So an example would be, I feel hurt when I see you spending your evening on your phone. I need that time together with you without phones present. I hope we can start to prioritize our evenings together. And this involves, I feel, fill in the blank, when, state what boundary was crossed, I need, I hope, I wish to state what you'd hope happens in the future. So another way of saying this, the more common way, and I know I'm guilty of this sometimes, is starting with you. It's you never listen to me. You're always on your phone. You don't want to spend time with me. You're a jerk. And maybe that part's extreme. But we typically go into the you, you, you. And when we do that, we activate the other person's nervous system. And then we end up in a conflict. And then nothing gets solved. So the I statements allow us to communicate what we need and our feelings in a way that's safe and calm. And then we don't get activated as well. Mm, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Sure. And the other part of that question, following through on promises, I think that involves more of a commitment to the self. And if there's an urge to cancel plans or not follow through on something, we want to analyze what emotions and thoughts are triggering that reaction and work to overcome that. Does that make sense? Yeah, can you, uh, so can you give a like practical example? Like, let's say I do have an urge that I don't, I like something has changed or in general I have, because if I'm like not so aware of my boundaries since I have just got out of an abusive relationship. So this is not like that all of a sudden I know everything. Uh, so my boundaries are still kind of quote unquote weak or I'm not so aware of them. So I have I, I ended up promising something, even though I had this initial feeling already that I might not want to do this 100%. Right. So, but yeah. then the time goes on and then I'm like, okay, I really don't like want to do it. So let's say I have this feeling like I don't want to do something, but I have made a promise and mm -hmm. you said that, well, then analyze that feeling. So yeah. how do I analyze that and what do I do with it? And yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're noticing that feeling rise, you're noticing the urge to cancel plans or avoid, that's a good indicator that there's something going on for you. And we can often say the body is remembering a past situation or the body is responding to fear. And we want to look at that fear. So if that's happening, there's a good chance that there's emotion. So we'd want to sit with that emotion and really identify what it is and identify what the thoughts are that go along with that emotion. So in your example, I would say sit down and do some journaling. If that's mm -hmm. something you like to do, write, write out what you're feeling, try to get more clarity on what that emotion is. And then we'd want to look at those thoughts. So if what would a, a typical thought process be associated with that fear in your example? um like that's well 
only thing that comes to my mind is that just um like you have promised to you have promised to help someone with let's say moving and Okay. it's your friend and but when you did promise that when you're you know let's say a couple weeks ago and um your friend asked you to come help in in the moving you already knew that in that weekend that the moving uh, is going to happen that you have quite a lot so you kind of had this initial feeling like okay i'm i'm you know saying yes to so many people all the time like that Okay. leads to you know exhaustion like i don't have time to take care of myself so that would be like one thought that like i really don't have time for this and i feel kind of almost like even like a little bit quote unquote weak that I've just, you know, said yes to something that I really didn't have the time to do. But I don't know if that's what you are looking for about like the thought Mm -hmm. process. yeah yeah exactly exactly so with that particular thought process we could we could look at that a couple different ways so first we might want to honor those feelings that you don't want to go and you're exhausted and that it is okay to let people down people that you trust and have a healthy relationship with it is okay to let them down. And then we would want to work on the steps that came before that. So in the future, we would want to say, okay, what do I do? So I don't do this again. How do I avoid that? And usually that would be recognizing the emotion a little bit earlier on recognizing the pattern of saying yes to everything. And where does that pattern come from? And I'm guessing it would come from that past abusive relationship. of having to say yes to everything. And if you don't, then you're mistreated or you're, there's a major repercussion. So being able to work on the pattern and work to change the pattern. Yeah. Yeah. But Okay. it, it is again, okay to say no. I would say in that situation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Then I was thinking when you, uh, when you first, we started talking about this question, you said that maybe in the beginning, if you have just got out of the, of an abusive relationship or toxic or narcissistic, um, that it might be necessary to have kind of more boundaries Yeah. because, um, uh, because before you kind of kind of figure out like, what is it that you can tolerate that it's more safe in the beginning to kind of not tolerate that much. Like if you had, if you feel even a little bit that, Mm okay, -hmm. I don't want to tolerate that because you probably are accustomed to tolerate more than quote unquote normal people or people who have only been in healthy relationships. Because if your past is abusive relationship, there is a lot of tolerance going on. You need to tolerate a lot. So are you saying that first before kind of going into the realm of, you know, what are the exact scale kind of, what is the exact continuum in my case? What is, you know, what I tolerate and what I, don't to be kind of very clear uh and you know stick to those things even though you kind of might mm, you know feel like okay i'm i am being pretty strict right now but kind of being confident in being strict because you need to understand that you have been tolerating a lot so or what thoughts do you have about this yes yeah and I love the way you said that that We, we it's okay to be confident in that we're being strict right now because that's self-compassion it's self-care it's healing and following narcissistic abuse it, I mean it's very very difficult to just jump back into freer boundaries and we need to protect ourselves for a little while and that's perfectly okay and it's recommended because we need that sense of safety as we heal And if we go back to that idea of the trauma narrative and how the body responds to it, then the body needs to learn what's safe and boundaries are safe. And we get safe feedback when people respect our boundaries. So when we create the boundaries, especially strict ones, we're allowing space for the brain to relearn safety and trust. And we have to do it in a step-by-step -step manner. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That was helpful. Um
Then, what do you think? As a survivor of narcissistic abuse, how can I cultivate shared interests with my partner or friends to build a health to build healthy relationships? I love this question because it brings up an exercise I do with my patients a lot in therapy. And first of all, it goes back to communication being and being able to share openly with your partner about things you're passionate about and things you'd like to try together. And somebody who's been in an abusive relationship, you likely did not have an opportunity to develop shared interests because it revolved all around the one person's interest. And it was unsafe to even have your own interests at some point. So I would say first we have to realize what those interests are and determine what do I truly like to do when I'm not feeling pressured or I'm not fearful. What what am I passionate about? And then if if this is specifically working with a partner, there's an exercise called the values clarification exercise. And this involves giving each partner a list of values, just common values, and they can add their own if they'd like. And then ranking them maybe one through 10, picking 10 of those that are their most important values. And then we would come back together and look at what values we share and what values are different. And with those shared values, we would determine some different hobbies or exercises or activities you can do that are cultivated based on a shared sense of value. And then that would continue to um, create, I think, more shared interests mm-hmm. and connection with the other person. Mm, okay. Thank you. That's that's really nice, the exercise that you just shared. I What comes to my mind is that sometimes I feel like when we have been involved with a narcissistic person, like if you ever approached like a narcissistic person with an exercise like that, because mm-hmm. you are in, in still maybe a state that you are not really not knowing what's going on, but you try to improve the relationship. Like you are like trying yeah. everything. You are like, oh, I read about this exercise. Like now we can, you know, cultivate shared interest if we do this. Like I can just see how that might, you know, how you might in the past, you might have been put down. Like, what are you coming here with your stupid exercise? Like, I don't want to do that. Like, that's dumb or like, you know, stuff like that. So uh, that exercise is great. What tips do you have for someone who might, you know, feel like initially like quite awkward with following or using an exercise like that or just Mm -hmm. like fear that, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe someone is thinking that I'm absolutely ridiculous because I want to do this exercise. Like how, like, because Mm -hmm. you, you might have experienced that in the past that if you have tried to do stuff like that, that then you are being called stupid or cringe or awkward or like, that doesn't make any sense or, you know, stuff like that. Oh, that's, and that's awful. And yeah, and that's a learned response then where we want to shut down and not engage in these things. And so if you are in a healthy relationship and this person you trust now, I would say that exposing yourself to the fear is really important. And it's difficult because the brain and the body does not like to be afraid. So we avoid. That's usually the coping strategy. So in therapy, what we often talk about is exposure therapy or yeah, exposure therapy. So we would design an experiment that would force you to face those fears. So this would be a good little experiment to try to face that fear. And then the goal of that would be to get the opposite feedback that you have had in the past, which then helps to rewrite the the brain and that trauma reaction again. Mm, So if you Yeah, if you start to think about it as kind of this, um, I would say, yeah, an exercise to help you move past the fear, it might be a little bit easier, but it is awkward in general, even in healthy relationships, it's a very awkward exercise, Mm -hmm. but it can lead to positive results. Why is it awkward, even in healthy relationships? What do you think? Yeah, well, what I notice is it's, it's structured. And when we um, think of relationships, we think more of like a natural, let's just flow. We, we love to go, I don't know, skydiving together. Let's just go. But we don't think about that. We need to really look at the shared values. We need to work hard on building a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, I guess that's also good just to know that maybe it's normal to feel It, like. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. absolutely. It's very awkward and it's very normal. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then I was thinking, is there like if someone does want to, let's say, follow through and use that exercise that you just shared, but is there something that comes to your mind, like, I don't know, smaller exercise or smaller thing that you can first kind of do kind of you know test the waters <laughs> like with this person uh, before going is like immediate like hey i want to do this exercise and let's do this and you know Right. is there something that you can you know that's smaller but Sure. you know towards that I'm wondering if maybe just a, a basic conversation of what what are you what do you value? I mean, having a conversation about it versus getting your piece of paper out and making it so formal, but ask, hey, what's important in your life? And then saying, oh, yeah, I relate to that, too. I wonder if we could maybe, you know, go skydiving since we both love adventure. And having that kind of conversation. And that also brings up another piece. If you find that there's values that are very different, which also comes up in that exercise. And it might come up in those little conversations, too, as your entrance into the exercise. That that's okay, too. And what we want to do is we want to celebrate them versus shutting down. because we want to remain, we want to <clears throat> retain that individuality. Okay. How do we celebrate them then? Because if you, let's say, I absolutely, you know, I hate adventures, like I want to stay at home. And uh, I think there are so many great things that like, we could just do at home, like, you know, cook dinner, watch movies, play board games. And this the other person share, uh, inter not shared, but interest is this very adventurous guy who or woman who wants to just, you know, go out there. Uh, so those are really different. And but you're following your advice, we have to celebrate those. But how we do that if I'm then like, I just absolutely I can't, you know, I, I, I can't come skydiving with you because I just don't want to do that. So is it just allowing then well, we you do your stuff i do my stuff and like we don't have to do this stuff together but we can figure out other stuff that we can do together what does the celebrate those differences in practice mean what do you mean by that Okay. So first, what I would want to do is have a conversation about why the person values that value. Why does that person love the adventurous value? And why does this person love the comfort of home? You kind of get to the, the deeper layers of that. And I think when we do that, we can come to some more common ground. So if this person loves um, adventuring because they're, say they're, they spent They were really restricted as a child, maybe, and they didn't have they weren't allowed to do a lot. They could never travel or do things. Then maybe this is their way of combating that and experiencing life. If the other person likes the comfort of home, maybe they moved around a lot as a kid and they want to just be stable for a little bit. Then maybe they could understand each other through those terms and maybe respect and have empathy for the other values. And then what we would do with that is we would. talk about how you can honor the other person's value while still feeling that connection. So what does the person need to feel adventurous? What does this other person need to feel the comfort of home? And how can we create that sense of safety, even though we have these different values? Oh, yeah, that's great. I didn't think of that. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, Or the psychodynamic approach there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's very true that when we don't go deeper, kind of ask like, well, why? Why is like, why you think like that? It's like, uh, then on the surface, it just looks so drastically different. Like someone is wants to be at home, someone wants to skydive. <laughs> like, but then when you really go like a little bit deeper and, you know, down, you can maybe find something, something like, like, yeah, make it, yeah, like you said, common ground. Yeah. Mm Thank you. Yeah, then, um, What do you then think? What are some effective ways to identify areas of commonality or discover new activities or hobbies that we can enjoy together while also recognizing and respecting our individual boundaries and preferences? -hmm. Question. 
this sounds similar to the last question, uh, but I think we can definitely add to it and look at it from a different perspective here. So let's, if we're using the whole values situation again, and the, and uh, a couple decides we love, we love adventure in nature, we're going to go kayaking. Uh, so they both go kayaking, but once they get out there, one partner wants to do this five, six hour crazy kayak marathon where the other person's version of nature was let's go for 30 minutes and have a nice picnic outside of the water here. Um, <clears throat> what would be really important in this situation is in recognizing and respecting our own individual boundaries and preferences is being able to communicate it. And someone who has been in a narcissistic relationship probably struggles with this because you, you just can't communicate your preferences. It's, it's very difficult. And there's a lot that happens if you do that. Mm -hmm. um, so learning that it is okay and it is safe and normal and healthy to have a difference of opinion. And this would probably involve that person having to make a commitment to themselves and the other person that they are going to speak up if an emotion arises. And if we're in therapy, I'm going to have the partner also check in with the person who may struggle with that. Say, are you okay? How's the, how are you feeling about this decision to go on this six hour crazy kayak ride? And instead of maybe submitting and being more passive about it, that person would have to, again, address the fear, face the fear and state their opinion. And then by doing that, they will get feedback in a healthy relationship that says, yeah, it's okay to have different opinions. Why don't we compromise? How about we do an hour? We'll have a picnic and maybe go back out for another hour if you're up for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes. And now that I'm thinking about the questions that, yeah, well, one effective way to identify areas of, you know, what, what we have in common would be the, what you already shared, the value, like what are your values exercise or just, you know, first having a conversation, you get a lot of information in that, uh, in that way already. And then if you do probably like you might have, uh, find someone that you both enjoy, then when you go do and engage in that activity, make sure that if there is any emotions that arise that, mm -hmm. and it's okay to you know say it out loud and that's the very first thing that you just have to communicate it because otherwise the other person can't know like right. yeah of course they can see that maybe you get more anxious but then mm -hmm. that can because they don't know why you are anxious or why you are irritated that can create that the whole experience becomes very you know unpleasant and then it's right. uh, you know they you know it it's like harder to do it again because then there is this unpleasant experience about it like then of course the other person might not ask you to do stuff again or you know but so that really the yeah. communication is that you have to do in order to you know enjoy exactly. activities together while also recognizing the boundaries yeah definitely okay makes a lot of sense and then um yeah, what do you then think about the question? As a survivor of narcissistic abuse, how can I learn to honor my own emotions and those of my loved ones in a healthy and respectful way? Okay. So this question, I think, has a couple different layers to it. We take the, the first part of that of how do I honor my own emotions and learn to honor my own emotions. The first thing that I think of is we need some self-esteem work here. We need to recognize our self-worth and start to feel safe expressing how we feel. And we even have to work on being able to just identify how we feel in that situation in order to know what those emotions are and honor those emotions. And um, after narcissistic abuse, it's really difficult to trust your own emotions and even to acknowledge them because there's been so much manipulation and denial of your inner world for so long. So working on being able to recognize it and then being confident in how you feel and recognizing that your needs and your emotions are so valid and are worth being heard and shared. So I would say that's the first layer of it. The second, which involves honoring the emotions of others, of loved ones in a healthy and respectful way, 
we want to make sure that this isn't a fear-based experience, that we're not honoring their emotions because I'm afraid. Like I have to do this or something bad's going to happen. And we also want to make sure that it's not this reaction where other people's needs are more important than mine. So it has to truly come from a place of um, love, safety, and I would say respect for those emotions versus fear. And I think the way to do that, if we're looking at some really basic concrete ways, would be to start with maybe a workbook. And there's a ton on Amazon. I don't have one to recommend right in this moment, but I can go through all of my resources and send one over. But there's a ton of workbooks out there for developing self-worth and self-esteem. And I think there's even one available now of developing self-identity and self-worth following a narcissistic relationship. And then when it comes to honoring the emotions of others, I think we go back to, again, that just that fear-based response, trusting our emotions, and then analyzing them, pulling them out, and deciding how we want to respond to the fear. Mm. And that involves a lot of mindfulness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so are you, are you saying that what if, what if I do not have that much anymore, you know, kind of this fear reaction when it comes to others, um, you know, others emotions, mm -hmm. uh, are there, do you have any tips like how I can become more aware of others emotions and then tips, how can I really make sure that uh, I'm honoring them as well? Or are you again saying that this is kind of natural process that once you become aware of your own emotions, it becomes way easier to become aware of others emotions. And once you honor yours, it's easier to honor others or yeah. 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 Right. I, I think the second part of what you said is once you start to become aware of your emotions and how those emotions are expressed in the relationship, it's much easier to demonstrate empathy and validation of the other person's emotions. And this kind of branches into, I think, the next question here too, but they're they're tied together. Mm, okay, yeah, let me ask that. Yeah, I can see that. So let me ask it so it makes sense more. So uh, mm -hmm. the next question that we have is, what are some effective strategies for active listening, empathizing, and validating others' feelings while also exp expressing my own needs and boundaries clearly and assertively? Okay, yeah, I think those two questions are tied together here. And what I would say about the how it ties into the the last question and what you had asked about how do we do this if we're kind of past that fear response here how do we do it and active listening is a wonderful tool and active listening involves more than simply hearing the words that the person is saying it's it's more that you want to seek to understand their intent behind the words versus the actual words and it's a very natural tendency as a human being to want to just simply react and chime in while somebody is talking. We have this tendency to have our own narrative going on in our head about what that person said and, and that inner dialogue, but that's not active listening. So we have to quiet that part down and truly focus on what this person means by their words. And a good way to show that we're, we're listening is through that eye contact. It's through our body language. It's noticing their body language and their nonverbals. And if we shift our attention to that, that also takes us out of that, our own dialogue and whatever's happening in our head, our own reaction. And a good way to summarize that is we want to listen to understand rather listen rather than listening to react. And we can also ask more open-ended questions to gain clarity. And that's how we can truly show that we're listening to somebody and honoring their emotions. And then another part of this question focused on empathy and validation. And using validation is a great tool to show empathy. And for people who are not as familiar with those terms, empathy is very different from sympathy. So empathy involves I don't have to really agree with how you feel, but I get it. And I can see that it's really hard for you. And I understand that. Where sympathy is, I feel bad for you, right? Validation is showing that you have heard their emotions and that it's okay to have those emotions. 
So if we respond to someone with validation, we're showing empathy. So validation might look like, um, I can see, I hear that you were really stressed out last night when I was working late. It, it seems like it's really hard for you to take care of the house when I'm not there to help you. I get it. That would be validation and also demonstrating empathy. Okay. Um, what was another part of this question here? The other part is kind of while also expressing my own needs and boundaries clearly and assertively. So again, I'm thinking about your example, like, oh yeah, I get it that it's like hard uh, mm -hmm. when I'm working late that you need help with the house. But so let's say mm -hmm. then her or his need is to, like, I just needed to work because it was something like, it's something like where it was very important. So yeah. How do you, in that situation, kind of also make sure that you express your own needs and boundaries? Yeah. Okay. So yes, we would start with the the act of listening. Then we would start with the validate or follow with the validation. So validation, like we said, I hear you were you're really overwhelmed when I work late and you're not there. So then the next step would be to use an I statement, and it goes back to that simple formula, which shows that we're we're expressing ourselves, our needs, and our boundaries in an assertive way. So a response to that might be, I hear that it's been really difficult for you to manage the household and your kids on your own. The empathy then comes in. I can see why you're so overwhelmed. And now the I statement, I feel anxious about our finances with this upcoming trip. I need to work more hours this month to manage that anxiety and feel more secure. I hope we can be understanding of each other's needs this month. And then maybe it goes into problem solving of, okay, well, maybe we need to have a grandparent come in and help with the kids and the chores and whatever's going on. Or we hire the teenager next door and she comes in and meal preps, whatever it is that they need to work through that. So we're kind of putting all of these pieces together to create a more cohesive, um, I guess, response and effective um, response to the situation. Yeah. So I would say definitely utilizing those assertiveness skills and the other communication skills that we talked about, putting it all together as a way to make sure that you're expressing your needs and your boundaries. Mm, yeah. What about that? Um, I'm thinking of an example where um, either your emotions or thoughts or feelings are something that are really painful or difficult or that the other person's thoughts and feelings and uh, emotions are something that's that are either very triggering for you or that they are like they are tough ones they are not like um that i now feel a little bit stressed about this but they are like some they maybe relate to some trauma and yeah. um so it might be hard in a situation like that to um you know honor the other person's experience mm -hmm. because they might be it might be very triggering for you or they are just tough emotions they are big they are yeah. hard for the person who is experiencing them to handle and then yeah. it might actually become a hard for the other person also to handle so do you have like tips like when when we are dealing with either emotions or thoughts that relate to trauma or mm -hmm. are in other ways they are like very difficult let's say we are we have some other mental health issues like mm -hmm. like major depressive disorder and you know stuff like that so it might you know be harder in situations mm -hmm. like that to really then honor and actively listen and then also state your own needs and boundaries when we are dealing with you know yeah. stuff like this yes that would be very difficult when the emotions are at a greater level or there's something else comorbid going on like you said anxiety or depression my recommendation in that situation is to be totally upfront with how you're feeling in that situation. So saying I'm having trouble being an active listener because I'm triggered right now. Mm. So stating what's actually happening for you. And then you can still follow that format of, I need some space right now to process this before I, I continue being an active listener or before I continue hearing you. Cause I don't think I can right now. And then taking that space to process, to calm down, maybe even getting some professional help to work through that trigger 
But usually after taking that space, allowing the body to calm down, we can come back and try again. And if that it's too much, then maybe that's a boundary we set that I'm not able to talk about this difficult topic right now. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like it's really important to describe to the other person, like really let them know that I, I really, I like, I respect you and I would want to talk about this, but right now I can't, like, yeah. it's not that, that you just, you know, go away and, you know, not, not let, yeah. you are not like letting them know what's happening because then, then I can imagine like someone just going away or shutting down or stuff like it can, again, you mentioned that can, you know, trigger someone's, someone's mm -hmm. nervous system in a way like, oh, they are, you know, rejecting me. They are starting mm -hmm. a silent treatment that I'm yeah. so used to before, like always, or, right. you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And then you can use that to check in to exam feeling like there's going to be a silent treatment here. And and maybe that's the other partner, but that's the other partner's job to to state that too. And then we can respond with just truly open communication of, yeah, I'm feeling, feeling very scared and vulnerable in this moment. And I do need to take that space and set that boundary. Mm. So it's a very vulnerable conversation, but stating, talking about your process of what's happening internally. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, then we have one more, which is how can I work with my partner or loved ones to build a culture culture of emotional safety and trust where all emotions are welcomed and respected? Okay. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of weekly check-ins in a relationship. And I, this is more with a partner with other family members. It might be a little bit different, but If we're trying to create that culture, a good way is to, to check in. And these are might be structured. They might be unstructured. So maybe it's every Wednesday you have, okay, we're going to check in on our relationship for 30 minutes and while we have sushi or something. Or maybe it's spontaneous and a drive, a solo drive somewhere, and you bring it up. But by checking in with the other person, you can get feedback on where the other person's at. What feels safe? What doesn't feel safe? Did something happen that was really triggering? What do I need more of to feel safe? And at that very first meeting, I would say you develop that framework. I mean, you truly talk about what that culture of emotional safety and trust looks like. And maybe for one person, it's more concrete. It's saying, I need a hug and a kiss every day before I leave the house. Otherwise, I, I will ruminate all day. I need that. And the other person, it might be more of a greater concept of, hey, when we're talking about tough stuff, I really need you to be an active listener, or I really need you to not try to jump in with advice when I just need you to listen. And it can be a series of things that pertains to the individual person. And you create that framework. And then during each check-in, you talk about our, how in alignment you are with that framework that was created. If someone fell off the track, that's okay. How do you get back on? What do you need that person to do to get back on? So that's more of a, I would say a therapeutic way to address it. Like we would offer in therapy, the interventions to create that, which I love because relationships are work. We have to put in that work and sometimes they're awkward and structured in order to do that. But I think if we've been in an abusive relationship, it's important to have more of that structure to feel safe, at least at first. Mm. Yeah. If we're trying to do this in a less structured way, a more um, way that flows, I think maybe starting off exhibiting those behaviors that creates the safety you want. So if you don't feel like you want to sit down and talk about this, maybe you just start doing it. So I'm going to start giving the kiss and hug before work every day. If it's something I need to make that kind of a statement that this is important to me, or I'm going to make the effort into more affection. If I need that affection in a relationship to feel safe, or I'm going to model that active listening. And if the other person doesn't do that, I'm going to point it out. Mm. 
and say, it would be really helpful for me if you, you didn't jump in and try to solve my problems. I just need a listener right now. Yeah, I, I like that a lot because I feel like often it can kind of solve itself. Like if you start to, you know, show affection more that, of course, it you in healthy relate when we are talking about healthy relationship, it usually, you know, uh, the other person's mood also increases. They might, you know, be more likely to be also more affectionate in their own way with you. And then it's this, you know, we are kind of systems, we affect each other. And, you know, in that way, we're all the time kind of connected and our brains probably are doing something to <laughs> assess all the time, the, everything. So exactly. It starts this like domino effect in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you brought up that systems perspective because this is really important. If we, if we do something, it is going to change something in the system. Mm. Example I always give with that is a baby mobile. You know, if you press one tiny piece of the baby mobile, the whole thing starts spinning. And it's kind of like a system too. You know, you, you give that one kiss and hug, then it shifts the entire mood and attunement for that day, even through just one tiny change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that too. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I think today we had some great questions and great, great answers. So I want to thank everyone for listening. And thank you, Dr. Taylor Palmetier, so much for coming here and sharing your insight and giving such practical and insightful advice. It's uh, truly appreciated. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful being here. I appreciate it. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.